Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Murder Castle. Herman Webster Mudgett, better known as H. H. Holmes, was an American serial killer who hunted in Chicago in the late 1890s, around the time of the World's Fair. Holmes was a killer, con artist, and trigamist and the subject of over 50 lawsuits in Chicago alone. Holmes was executed on May 7, 1896, nine days before his 35th birthday. Depraved is a fascinating true crime book on the life of H. H. Holmes. The book's author, Dr. Harold Schechter, joins me now. Good afternoon, Dr. Schechter. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me on. Now, Holmes is historically classified as a serial killer, although um, he bends the current definition a little bit um, uh, that stated a person, quote, who murders three or more people, usually in the service of abnormal psychological gratification. Now, he certainly killed three or more people, often very cruelly, but most of his murders had to do with financial gain or to get out of legal trouble. I do agree uh, that the term serial killer, when it first was coined, and it was actually coined, I have since discovered, back in 1930s, uh, to describe uh, a notorious, what they used to call lust murderer, named Peter Curtin, but the people to whom it was first applied in this country, Bundy and Dahmer and John Wayne Gacy, etc. <clears throat> again, these were all people who previously, kinds of criminals who previously would have been called lust murderers. That is to say, you know, they committed their, their, their atrocities in the service of very, very perverse sexual needs. You know, they were sex murderers. Uh, it's true that Holmes does not fit into that category. You know, he was not a sexual mutilation murderer or somebody who derived, again, perverse sexual pleasure from torturing his victims and murdering his victims, as Jack the Ripper, obviously. Well, Jack the Ripper didn't torture his victims, but he was obviously a mutilation murderer. Um, so yes, yeah, so in that sense, Holmes does not fit into that category. On the other hand, there's no doubt that he must have derived some sort of uh, depraved gratification from committing the kinds of crimes he did. You know, there have been some serial killers who kind of combine a mercenary motive with these deeper psychological, aberrant psychological drives. And uh, I think Holmes fits into that particular category of serial murder. So let's get to know H. H. Holmes. Uh, well, Holmes was born uh, uh, Herman Mudgett 
in a small New Hampshire town, Gilmanton, New Hampshire. You know, uh, I was just talking to this about this with some other people. You know, until they become infamous uh, criminals like Holmes, these very notorious criminals, um, lead very obscure lives. You know, I mean, they're they're not particularly documented. So uh, many, many tales about Holmes' early years um, that have come down to us are of questionable reliability. You know, there are these stories about his, um, you know, having displayed some of the classic signs of serial murder as a child, torturing animals, for example. Uh, and there was a story uh, told after he was arrested that he might have pushed one of his playmates to death. You know, none of that has been documented and most of it has been called into serious question. Um, he was obviously a very intelligent person. He seems to have been a person of uh, a good deal of glib charm. Um, you know, he was, he, in, in, in most respects, he fits into the uh, classic category of a psychopath. You know, somebody with above average intelligence, um, but who possesses nothing like uh, a human conscious, a human conscience or capacity for empathy, uh, who thinks only of his own needs and is uh, ready and willing and able to exploit other human beings, again, for his own egotistic purposes. Uh, he did attend medical school and received a medical degree. At some point, he moved uh, to Philadelphia, um, where he found work as a pharmacist. Again, uh, there's some question about um, what uh, it was at that point, by the way, he changed his name to Holmes. And he appears to have gotten into some difficulty when he was a pharmacist. Again, the details are a little unclear. Um, you know, supposedly he prescribed the wrong medication uh, for a patient that led to that person's death. Um, we do know that in the late 1800s, he ended up in Chicago where he got a job um, in a pharmacy uh, run by a, a guy named Holton and his wife. And uh, he eventually took over that pharmacy. Again, there were these stories that uh, he might've been responsible for murdering Holton and then murdering his wife. Uh, and uh, at some point he sold the pharmacy to um, a young man and then he promptly uh, began a relationship with the young man's wife, uh, whose name was Julia. You know, Holmes again did seem to exert a great deal of appeal on the opposite sex as it was called back in those days. Um, so, uh, so he was actually, um, he had been, he was married simultaneously uh, at various points to different women. Among other things, he was a bigamist. Uh, anyway, Holmes has come down to us uh, in history and I would even say cultural mythology for having constructed on a corner opposite the original Holton's pharmacy of a large, somewhat rambling, 
building, an office building primarily, that came to be known as the Castle of Horrors. Uh, let me just say, uh, before we proceed further, that at the time Holmes' crimes were discovered, this was the heyday of what was called the Yellow Press. The Yellow Press was the precursor of 20th century tabloid culture. And, uh, you know, the great pioneers of the Yellow Press were Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. And their newspapers, like the tabloids of the 20th century, trafficked in extreme sensationalism. Uh, and their unspoken motto was also, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. So, you know, when you read the newspaper articles about Holmes and his castle, you really have to take them with a very large, well, more than a grain, probably a tablespoon of salt. This was right around the time of the great Chicago World's Fair of 1893 and 94. Um, and uh, the castle, when you see pictures of it, it just looks like this big building. Not even that impressive a building uh, at the time because Chicago, you know, having recovered from the great fire of 1873, you know, was in the midst of this huge building boom and uh, erecting all these skyscrapers. You know, Holmes Castle was three stories high. Uh, the bottom floor was devoted to various businesses. Um, there were some rooms on the second floor. Uh, he did build a third floor, uh, supposedly uh, as a hotel uh, for visitors to the World's Fair. Um, he designed the castle himself. Uh, and one consequence of that is that the interior, you know, is very weird and eccentric and contained all these architectural features that you would not find in a building designed by a professional architect. Uh, in your book, you do detail some of the uh, features of the room. Um, you state that uh, most of the rooms had been rigged with gas pipes Con, uh, connected to the control panel in Holmes's bedchamber, and the, uh, the doors to these rooms could be locked only from the outside. And then there were other equally sinister features of the second story, secret passageways, concealed closets, accessible through sliding pandles, panels, trap doors opening up into darkness, and large greased shafts that led straight to the cellar. And down there we had acid tanks, uh, quick lime vats, dissecting table, surgeon's cabinet, and the other gruesome <laughs> tools of the trade. And one of the more fascinating things um, that there was a um, contraption called in, that uh, Holmes uh, called an elasticity determinator. Uh, that it was a technologi technological marvel whose purpose was to produce a race of giants by stretching experimental subjects to twice their normal length. Uh, but those who viewed it up close, uh, it appeared more to be just a medieval torture rack. And last but not least, 
um, a large um, walk-in safe that you might uh, find uh, in a bank somewhere. Homes uh, have this very large walk-in safe installed in the building. Uh, and then once it was there, refused to pay for it. Uh, and, and apparently, again, you know, he was a con man. Um, you know, we know this uh, from recent events. I mean, there, there, there are a lot of building construction people uh, who put up these buildings and then don't pay their workers. But anyway, um, so, uh, you know, homes would hire workers and then fire them on some, for some flimsy excuse and never pay them. Well, he, he, he had this big safe installed and then refused to pay for it. And when the company said they were going to take it out, he said, be my guest, but then I'll, <coughs> excuse me, sue you, you know, for damaging the building. So, but apparently he employed this uh, safe as a kind of death chamber. Uh, and he would again lure or somehow manage to lock his, some of his victims into the safe and then take pleasure in their slow death, starvation, suffocation, whatever. Now, aside from allegedly getting rid of wives, mistresses, and business complications at the castle, Legend has it that he rented out rooms to guests at the World's Fair and would rob and then dispatch folks using the medieval features of his castle. But one of his major cons, which to me ended up being his most heartless, is not in dispute and involved a fellow con man named Benjamin Peitzel and Mr. Peitzel's unwitting family. Holmes was a very enterprising person. And he was a very clever person, diabolically clever in certain ways. And he was a person of enormous energies. Uh, and if he had not been undone, again, by his own psychopathology, you know, he was living in the Gilded Age when the culture worshipped these businessmen, uh, you know, and, and these self-made millionaires. You know, somebody like Holmes probably could have been a great success, again, uh, you know, that he was undone by this uh, psychopathology, which ultimately led to his destruction. And that's what happened with the scheme with Peitzel. Uh, they decided that they would pull this off in Philadelphia, uh, which was in, in proximity to the insurance company that issued <laughs> the uh, policy that they had taken out on Peitzel's life. And uh, Peitzel went there. Peitzel was something of an inventor. He set up an office, a, a, you know, a kind of a patent office. Uh, supposedly, he was going to die in a fire. Uh, Holmes was going to supply a corpse, uh, presumably because he had connections to other doctors. Uh, who had these dissection specimens, you know, Holmes was going to get hold of one. They were going to substitute uh, this charred corpse for Peitzel's body, collect all this money. I forget the exact amount, but it was a substantial sum. Uh, anyway, Peitzel went along with this. So uh, Peitzel, by the way, was married with five children. Uh, 
Uh, he left his wife and kids in Chicago, um, uh, with, told his wife uh, that if she read anything about him in the newspapers, that he died and stuff, don't worry, it wasn't true. Um, but Holmes never um, intended to find a cadaver uh, to pass off as the dead body, but indeed was planning to kill Peitzel all along. For a whole variety of reasons, not the least of which was Holmes would come into twice as much money. Um, and yeah, and also, um, you know, you get rid of somebody who might conceivably turn on him or, you know, get into, you know, get drunk and reveal what he had done. Um, so, yeah, so Holmes ended up killing Peitzel. Um, and uh, setting this fire uh, to um, disfigure Peitzel's corpse. Uh, he, and then he went, uh, and this I think illustrates the true, what happened next really illustrates the true depth of Holmes's depravity. Um, you know, earlier victims, Julia Smith, for example, uh, who was one of his mistresses, uh, who ended up dead in the castle. Uh, but there can be no question that how what Holmes did uh, with Peitzel and the family, you know, reveal a profoundly unhinged, you know, kind of psychology. Holmes went back to Chicago and uh, knowing that he needed a family member to identify the corpse, brought back with him Peitzel's oldest daughter. And he brought with him two other children. Uh, and he arranged with Carrie that they would all meet up after all this stuff was resolved. Uh, but she needed to, but they needed to split up for now. And so Holmes uses um, Peitzel's daughter to identify the, identify the charred remains of her father. And then Holmes set out on this kind of remarkable odyssey in which he uh, took the children, you know, from one place to another, you know, one city to another, up into Canada. Meanwhile, simultaneously keeping Carrie uh, from, you know, promising Carrie that they would all be reunited, including her husband, Benjamin, telling his wife, Carrie, uh, you know, that they would all meet up at some point. But every time she arrived, you know, at this rendezvous point, Holmes made some uh, excuse for why she couldn't join up with her husband and the other kids. You know, they were under surveillance. It was too risky. Let's do it in Niagara Falls. Let's do it here. Let's do it there. And not, not to mention the fact that he's hiding from his own wife, his, his current wife at the time, Georgiana. Um, he's got her stashed away and he's uh, convincing her that he's doing business around the country selling, um, uh, you know, new uh, new technology copying machines to the to the railroad. He was uh, this incredible puppet master, 
um, who was able to keep these all these balls in the air, well, to mix my metaphors, um, you know, simultaneously. And again, you know, he had known these kids for years. You know, they saw him as like Uncle Howard, sort of. Um, and, you know, under the guise of uh, taking care of them and being solicitous of their needs, and, you know, when they got bored, taking them to the zoo, you know, the whole time he was just plotting how best to get rid of them, which he ultimately did. He ultimately murdered all three of the children in different places and different locations so that presumably their bodies would never be found and never be able to be, and if they were never connected to him. Um, according to your book, the uh, two sisters, Alice and Nellie, were um, forced into a large trunk with a hole in the back where a gas hose was uh, put through, and they were asphyxiated while uh, Holmes stood there uh, calmly waiting for it to be over. Their brother Howard, who had disappeared, I believe, some months before, and the the, the, the two sisters didn't know where he had been uh, taken, was uh, his body, his remains were found uh, sometime later by a detective in, um, in, a, in a chimney. So the Pinkertons, you know, were following Holmes. They finally arrested him just before he was about to leave the country. Uh, and, you know, he basically thought he was just being arrested on some relatively minor charge. You know, he claimed the kids were fine. You know, they were with these different accomplices. Uh, and then uh, the Chicago police set one of their ace detectives, a guy named Frank Geyer, on the trail uh, and Geyer ended up uh, locating the bodies of all three children. Yeah, so uh, Holmes is uh, captured. Uh, again, he thinks it's, you know, for some, you know, relatively trivial scheme he pulled off. Uh, he kept insisting for a long time that Paisa was still alive, that the kids were fine, that they were with a, a, an accomplice, a female accomplice who was taking care of them. You know, poor, you know, uh, Peitzel's wife, Carrie, you know, is undergoing, you know, this increasing breakdown because she just wants to see her kids again. And she keeps being assured that she will. You know, when Geyer, Detective Geyer, who has discovered the corpses of her children, uh, when it has to be finally broken to her uh, that the kids are dead, well, you know, her reaction is easy to imagine. Um, at that point, the, the, uh, the newspapers, the yellow press, you know, leap on this story and, uh, you know, Holmes becomes this really nationwide and even international phenomenon. You know, it's interesting. One of the interesting uh, facets of the case, uh, was seeing how, um, first of all, the fascination with sensational crime stories, um, which, you know, is easy to believe might be a function of the world we live in today, you know, has been a perennial feature of culture, 
you know, that people have always been fascinated with sensational murders. The only thing that's changed is, you know, the means of technological transmission, you know, in the, in, in the pre-electronic era, um, you know, these stories were told through print. So Holmes was immediately portrayed as uh, the reincarnation of Bluebeard, you know, Bluebeard, the famous fairy tale character who murdered his wives and kept their corpses in a secret bloody chamber. Um, in, and that, that was the point at which reporters uh, finally entered into Holmes's building, Holmes's premises. And this is when stories began to, uh, you know, be promulgated that this was, again, a medieval torture castle uh, with this torture dungeon, um, you know, and, and all these stories. So, yeah, Holmes uh, was elevated into the front ranks of all American monsters. Uh, and, uh, you know, ultimately he was convicted of Peitzel's murder uh, while he was in prison awaiting his execution. Again, he was offered a substantial sum. The one interesting thing about Holmes is that he, he had maintained a close relationship uh, with his second wife, Myrta, um, with whom he'd had a child. Uh, and... Uh, you know, you sometimes find that with serial killers, even some of the most sadistic and heinous, you know, is that they will have family lives and their families never suspect them, you know, uh, you know, being the kind of person capable of these atrocities, uh, you know, and they, they sometimes are, you know, not always, but sometimes are, you know, relatively decent spouses and fathers and so on. Um, yeah, so, so Holmes, uh, you know, did have something approaching human feelings for his second wife. And, you know, so when Hearst offered him, I think something like, well, a substantial sum of money, I want to say $5,000, but I don't know if it was that. I think it was five, five yeah. thousand, maybe. You know, he knew he was going to be able to leave it to Myrta and his daughter. Uh, so uh, he concocted this confession, which was really based on a lot of the stories that the yellow press had already invented about him, um, you know, and he portrayed himself, you know, as the greatest, you know, most devilish killer who had ever lived and so on and so on and so forth. And, you know, that is the way he had entered into and to some extent has continued to remain in, in our cultural imagination. So uh, despite the uh, subtitle to your book, Depraved, the shocking true story of America's first serial killer, uh, since writing the book and time passing, you you have done research and feel he technically was not America's first uh, serial killer. Uh, so who was? Well, you know, it's hard to know. Um, I'm sure there were many what we would now call serial killers in our history that we have no idea. I mean, you know, back in the old days, if you were uh, a psychopath, homicidal psychopath, and were a white man, you can go butcher as many Native Americans as you wanted. 
and you wouldn't be penalized for it. You know, you might get a medal for it. Um, but there were uh, a couple of cousins, I guess. Uh, they're often called brothers, known as the Harps, uh, back in the 18th century, uh, who apparently uh, committed a whole string of butcheries. Uh, there were, uh, again, the book I referred to before, the Psycho USA, uh, when I was re researching that, came across a, nu a number of uh, classic uh, serial sex killers who preceded homes, um, you know, who, who preyed on uh, young women and, and uh, you know, sexually mutilated them and so on and so forth. You know, the thing about serial murder, the phrase serial murder is a relatively recent coinage. Again, uh, I was able to determine that it was first used in Weimar, Germany in the 1930s uh, to describe a guy named Peter Curtin, um, again, who was a, a classic lust murderer. Um, and, and then in our own country, it really didn't enter into the language until the early 1980s. I, I believe it was first used in print in the New York Times to refer to the Atlanta child murders. Um, which I think were 1982. But the phenomenon itself has always existed uh, as a feature of you know, human behavior, probably even predates our species, uh, because uh, you know, as I'm sure you know, we're genetically very close to uh, chimpanzees. You know, uh, we share more DNA with chimpanzees than chimpanzees share with gorillas. Uh, and chimpanzees, um, even though, you know, I think of them as like cheetah, Tarzan's buddy cheetah, but, you know, they're insanely violent creatures uh, who, uh, you know, routinely engage in kinds of violent behavior that, you know, is like the worst of any serial killer. Uh, so, yeah, so human beings have always, so serial murder has always been, you know, been, uh, you know, been part, I mean, the fairy tale character Bluebeard, you know, is presumably based on an actual French aristocrat, Gilles de Ray, um, you know, who tortured and murdered an indeterminate number of children and so on. So yeah, in our own country, I'm sure there are, you know, all too many, what we would now call serial killers before homes. Um, now the, uh, the character Norman Bates in the uh, movie Psycho was actually based on a real-life serial killer, wasn't he? And also the character Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs um, were all inspired by the crimes of a guy named Edward Gein, which is spelled G-E-I-N. So uh, to finish up, Holmes uh, went uh, to the gallows uh, fairly calmly and uh, leaving uh, very specific instructions as to um, his burial, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Uh, so Holmes left specific instructions uh, before his execution uh, that he be buried in a grave uh, that was lined with a concrete vault um, because he was afraid uh, that his own body might be exhumed and end up on the dissection table. I mean, Shakespeare, you know, felt the same way, uh, you know, on his gravestone. Uh, there's a very famous uh, 
epitaph um, where he, you know, warns potential grave robbers away from disturbing his bones. And if you'll indulge me, the words on Shakespeare's tombstone read, Good friends, for Jesus' sake, forbear to dig the bones enclosed here. Blessed be the man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. And on that very literary note, I think it's uh, time to say goodbye to our guest on Murder Most Foul today, Harold Schechter. Uh, we've been discussing his book, Depraved. And uh, Harold, why don't you tell my audience how they can uh, learn more about you, your books, and maybe even get in contact you if they'd like. Uh, well, uh, one good way of getting information is on my Wikipedia page, um, which has just been revised and brought up to date. Uh, I do have a website that I never visit called haroldschechter.com. And I also have a Facebook page, which I also never visit. Um, which is kept for me, but I do, it's kept for me by somebody uh, who then does, uh, can, you know, transmit to me any messages uh, that I get. And, you know, just today I got several, so, and I'm always happy to receive them and reply to them. So Great. I'm hoping after this bet is up, you're going to get a lot more. So <laughs> again, I want to thank you so much. I'm going to be looking for your uh, next book, which is out soon. So everyone should keep an eye out for Maniac, which is going to be on the stands or at least published. See how quickly it gets to the booksellers. Uh, but it will be pu published uh, on the 9th of March. Yeah. So that's great. Um, and again, I want to thank you again, Harold uh, Schechter, for uh, spending time with us. Thank you. Uh, it's, been, it's been a delight. Thank you. course, I want to thank you, my listeners, to Murder Most Foul. And if you uh, enjoyed today's podcast, I hope you'll listen to others on my podcast site. And of course, they can be uh, downloaded uh, from any of your favorite music platforms. And please tell your friends. And if you'd like to leave me a comment, always looking for uh, comments, pros and cons, and also maybe even tips on a, on a murder that I'm not familiar with that you'd like to see me cover. And you can do that on my website, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. And until we meet again, stay safe and stay healthy. <laughs>